0: collaborators, honest competitors, or hostile rivals, the tech sectors of the US and China. I'm Tanya Hall and joining me is Harvey Lamayu, Senior Fellow at the Lowy Institute. Welcome, Hervé.
1: Thanks very much for having me.
0: What is the mission of the Lowy Institute and what is your role there?
1: So the Lowy Institute is a think tank in Australia. Uh, We realized about 15 years ago that there was a need to think um, about our foreign policy. We're in a very special place in the world. We're uh, far from everything, or so we thought, for a large portion of our history. But with globalization and the fact that Asia is essentially uh, in our our backyard, uh, we're having to think about uh, the implications of the rise of China, Uh, whether the U.S. will continue to be uh, our our biggest ally in the future or whether it um, decides to retrench from Asia. So there are all sorts of security, uh, technological, economic trends that we need to think about, and we need to think about how that affects Australia and how Australia can affect those trends um, in the world. So we've been around for 15 years. We look at uh, security, economics. uh, We look at Southeast Asia, East Asia, the Middle East. um, And I specifically... Look after a project called uh, the Asia Power Index, where we undertake a comprehes- comprehensive assessment of the national capabilities of Australia and 24 other countries in our region. So we go as far north as Russia, as far west as Pakistan, and as far into the Pacific as the United States uh, and, and Australia.
0: How would you describe the state of the technology business between China and major Asian powers like the United States, Australia, Japan, and India? Are we collaborators or honest competitors or are we hostile rivals?
1: Yeah, well, that's a really really interesting uh, question. And I think basically it's a bit of everything. Um, But we do seem to be moving from a period after the fall of the Cold War uh, where we were talking about a positive sum, you know, a globalization where uh, it was a win-win for everyone involved, uh, back to something uh, that resembles competition and zero-sum politics between the largest players, that is the United States and China, and every other country uh, in Asia, but really in, in globally is, is also involved in that game. So I think there are three big implications here. One is that I don't think the United States will be able to stem the rise of China. Um, China will be a rival to the United States, at least in its own region in the Asia Pacific. Um, secondly, um, I think that globalization will continue to involve the United States and China, even if it involves even if they do less and less together. So we're talking about decoupling between the world's two largest economies in terms of technology, in terms of trade, in terms of investment, as a result of the geopolitical competition that seems to be uh, reasserting itself. Um, But thirdly, I think that leaves a really interesting role for all sorts of third actors, businesses, but smaller players and countries like Australia, because our biggest business partner, uh, our biggest trade partner is China, but our our biggest security partner historically has been the United States. So we're caught in a very difficult position uh, between the US and China, and that's not unique to Australia. A lot of uh, uh, Asian countries are dependent on China economically for globalization increasingly, um, but also need the United States to be in the region to preserve uh, security and, and, and to really rely on an alliance network to keep the peace in our region. So that's the source of tension uh, in terms of foreign policy. But obviously, we have to look at how technological uh, trends, uh, military capability, cyber, uh, all sorts of um, uh, new uh, capabilities that countries are acquiring affect the balance of power in our region.
0: The Lowy Institute uh, published a study, your project, called the Asia Power Index. You mentioned that earlier. On what basis did you find that while the U.S. remains preeminent power in Asia, it has become a net underachiever in 2019?
1: Yeah, that's right, and and I think this is a worrying sign because what we're uh, what we're doing essentially is is, is looking at um, comprehensive national power. We're looking at the ability of the U.S. to project its uh, influence and its interests abroad, to pursue its objectives with allies. Um, And what we find is that the United States remains the dominant player within the Asia-Pacific, and that's actually a very unique position to be in because it's not actually an Asian power. It's an external strategic player, but it remains the most powerful country in Asia. However, the power differential between China and the U.S. has narrowed over the course of the last two years, and the U.S. has, underachieved. What does that mean? I think We think that uh, the Trump administration's foreign policy has actually succeeded in accelerating the leveling between the U.S. and China um, because it's overly fixated on things like renegotiating trade agreements, not only with China, but with a number of its allies on rebalancing trade flows. And these uh, initiatives are not keeping pace with the rise of China as an economic soft power in our region. So that is a worrying sign, but it, it is reversible. Uh, with clever policy. Uh, But it requires investing in partnerships, and that's what we're not seeing at the moment.
0: To what degree are the major Chinese tech companies independent operators or extensions of the government or military?
1: Uh, it's it's very blurry and this is something that concerns us in Australia increasingly because, for example, we do a lot of collaboration with our uh, universities, uh, Chinese academics uh, come here, uh, there's a knowledge sharing um, um, ethos here, uh, we think that we stand to benefit from this kind of exchange of knowledge and certainly they do too. Um, however, um, a lot of the technologies that we're developing here have potential dual use capability that is to say they have both civilian applications as well as military applications and if you scratch the surface um, you realize that to a great extent a lot of these Chinese uh, academics in Australia actually have ties direct or indirect with the People Liberation army and what we don't want to do is to is to help uh, with the military modernization efforts or an arms race uh, in Asia that would that would only aid China uh, because china's increasingly assertive so these are things that we 're having to balance in australia we, we do want an open climate but we don 't want that to be abused um, and uh, and so this is something that we 're actively actively having to deal with at this at this point
0: in what technology areas is is China the strongest compared to the United States or japan are are there any tech sectors where they are or are likely to to take the innovation lead?
1: Yeah, so we have to look at where the strategic comparative advantages come from. Um, and what we've seen in particular is that uh, China has made huge inroads in terms of renewable renewables in general, new, renewable generation uh, of of um, whether that's uh, wind, uh, solar. Uh, or hydro, and um, uh, at, at present, China produces three times as much renewable energy annually than does the United States um, and is the global leader in, in that on that front. Why is that important? I mean it's important because uh, climate change is important and we have to tackle uh, you know, decarbonization. but more importantly or as importantly strategically, it means that China um, has recognised that it is increasingly dependent on procuring energy from abroad. Fossil fuels involves going further and further afield, uh, protecting strategically vulnerable energy transit routes. Think about how the U.S. was dependent on the Middle East for a very long time. Well, that's exactly what's happening with China as its economy is growing. So they're thinking strategically about this and they want to have more autonomy over how they uh, procure their energy. They want to own their energy, so they're less beholden to any other trade partners. Now, at the moment, uh, they've got this close relationship with Russia. It hasn't always been close, but uh, Russia is a source of diversification in the way that China procures its fossil fuels. But it's really thinking in terms of long-term, it needs to adapt to renewables. In Australia, this is an area where we lag. We could be doing much more. We have an entire continent um, of uh, you know where it's largely sunny, we have wind, uh, we have hydro, um, and yet we're not thinking strategically. We're one of the largest energy exporters globally. We we are net exporters of coal, um, and yet we are the most dependent country in Asia on uh, importing refined fuel. And that means we're very vulnerable to any disruptions in energy trade flows. Um, for example, something that happens in South China Sea or off the coast of Iran, tankers get bombed well, suddenly we're, very, uh, we're, we're hit very quickly. So we need to think about a national fuel reserve, but we also need to think about investing in renewables. I think the same goes for the US. There is a strategic impediment here um, to trying to get um, uh, further, to leapfrogging on the renewables ladder. Um, and it's not just about climate change. It is also about geopolitics. So that's one front. I mean, another area where, where China seems to be making huge inroads in terms of uh, supercomputer, supercomputing, super Um, This is quite amazing um, as a statistic. Uh, China now has more than double, about 225 supercomputers. Uh, That is to say, it has 225 of the best uh, supercomputers of the top 500 globally. Um, And uh, the US only has 109. Now, not only did China manage to have double, but it has only overtook the US about a year ago. Uh, in terms of its ability uh, to produce these supercomputers. So this is another area where we're seeing um, China really leapfrogging um, and, and we have to ask ourselves um, um, that technology you know, can be a double-edged sword. It can be used for benign purposes, uh, to further globalization, um, to increase the prosperity of not only Chinese citizens, but, but globally. Uh, but it can also have military advantages. So these are all sorts of trends which we're having to think about. And there are things that we, uh, as Western countries, should be doing more of. And we should be thinking strategically about these technologies.
0: How might the protests in Hong Kong affect the mainland Chinese tech sector?
1: Yeah, um, well, it's a big question. I mean, China is rising, but it faces its own set of problems. Um, And this is why ultimately we're skeptical that China will be able to have undisputed primacy in Asia anytime soon. Firstly, it's, it faces external challenges. So it has a number of disputes with its neighbors, um, unresolved boundary disputes and, and interstate conflict legacies that go back decades with countries like India and Vietnam. Uh, but then internally, it faces huge problems as well. Um, so there are, there's, there's civil unrest, as we've seen in Hong Kong, as we've seen in Tibet, as we've seen in, in Xinjiang. Um, <clears throat> there's the centralizing force of the Communist Party. Uh, coming up against uh, uh, increasing, I think, um, uh, and legitimate grievances of the people. Um, as a China's economy uh, starts to slow as well, the kind of devil's pact between the Communist Party and, and, and Chinese citizens, which was to say, look, I agree not to have any political rights. In exchange, we have, uh, you know, ec- economic growth rates of 10 percent annually. That is sort of disappearing. That social pact is disappearing because the, the economy is slowing. So people are increasingly more concerned about uh, public goods, about health care, about political rights. Um, and uh, that affects countries, uh, sorry, city-states like Hong Kong, but it also affects uh, other places as well. China is also an aging society, so its workforce is going to decline by 158 million people over the course of the next 30 years. That's absolutely drastic. That is, is going to cause political and social uh, uh, challenges for the Communist Party. It also means that in relative terms, um, it, it will no longer be the world's most populous country very soon. India will take over, and by the mid-century, uh, by 2050, uh, India will be 20% larger than, than is China. So there are <clears throat> huge challenges which, um, the, which Beijing is having to confront. Um, and while it's ahead in terms of technology, <clears throat> we have to keep on, on board these kind of social uh, and economic and demographic uh, trends on, uh, as well.
0: What advice would you offer to U.S. tech executives and regulators about working with the Chinese or expanding into their country?
1: Um, I think that life will become more difficult or things will get worse before they get better.
0: Um, And uh,
1: fundamentally, this is not just a uh, Trump administration fluctuation in bilateral ties. I think something profound has shifted here uh, between the relationship between the U.S. and China. Um, And that will make uh, life more difficult for businesses who have traditionally tapped into uh, China as a source of uh, uh, cheap labor. Now, China's cheap labor is disappearing anyway, and China's climbing the value chain. So in any, in any case, even without the politics, um, business would become more difficult. Uh, and there's a diversification of trade and, and supply chains away from China into places like Taiwan and Vietnam and Malaysia, because they represent be- better value propositions. So I think we're, we're talking about the bifurcation of supply chains. I think that's a phenomenon that's going to um, continue for both political reasons as well as um, these social uh, and Economic reasons, and um, what we're talking about then is globalization that will be a bit more like two spheres of influence, as opposed to the kind of interconnected, interdependent uh, world that we got used to in the '90s and 2000s. Um, That's the big picture view. Um, But uh, the other, I think, micro view is you know you've got to be more careful traveling to China. Um, uh, You know, we've seen uh, high-profile arrests, for example, in, in the case of Huawei in Canada. Um, which has involved then retaliatory measures in China, uh, where uh, China has actually taken hostage uh, Chinese dipl- uh, Canadian diplomats, for example, um, and 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 so it's not you know I, th- I think basically the world of politics is colliding with the world of business, um, and it's going to be it's going to be unpredictable. Um, and um, I think businesses can no longer be, uh, perhaps geopolitically naive uh, in the way that they once were. They, they've got to really read up on these on these trends.
0: Hervé Lemayu, Senior Fellow at the Lowy Institute. If somebody wants to connect with you, Hervé, how can they do that?
1: So you can reach me on Twitter. Um, I'm at uh, Hervé Lemayu, that's H-E-R-V-E-L-E-M-A-H-I-E-U. Um, or you can search for the Asia Power Index or the Lowy Institute. And I'm very happy to to continue the debate uh, and the discussion uh, on Twitter. Thanks very much.
0: Sounds good. Thanks again for joining us. And if you guys want to find more of my interviews, you can do that right here or go to tanyahall.net. Thanks for watching.